I'll be the first to admit, like, I don't fucking know. I think this is good pricing. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hey everyone, I just wanted to tell you about a big online event that I'm throwing on Tuesday, July 28th to August 2nd. It's called the Growth Summit, and it includes some of the top minds in digital marketing and sales, such as Neil Patel, Keaton Shaw, Brian Belfour from HubSpot, Ollie Gardner from Unbounce, and much, much more. The amount of knowledge that is going to be dropped during this event is priceless, and here's the kicker. It's free. And we're also giving away a free resource called 29 Growth Hacking Wins by Matan Griffel and Growth Everywhere. So go to growtheverywhere.com slash summit. Once again, that's growtheverywhere.com slash summit to register now to lock in your seat and prepare for an incredible event. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this session of Growth Everywhere. And today we have the founder of Fedora, Encore Nagpal, and Fedora is a tool that lets you create beautiful online schools and allows you to put it on, correct me if I'm wrong here, allows you to put it on your website or do you guys host it, uh, Encore? Yep, so we let you put it pretty much anywhere. So it works kind of like Shopify where you can put it on your own domain name. So it could be courses.growtheverywhere.com. If you don't want that, you can have it at growtheverywhere.usefedora.com. But ultimately, we realize that it's really important to let teachers brand it the way they want to. And that means you can put it on, you know, pretty much any URL. Ultimately, the software is, you know, we take care of the hosting. Um, so you don't have to worry about that. But in terms of what it looks like to your end students, you know, it looks like it's running on your website. Got it. Okay, perfect. I, I definitely want to dive into um, Fedora itself. But let's hear a little bit about your background as it leads up to uh, Fedora. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'm 26 years old. Um, I you know, started my entrepreneurial journey when I was, um, I want to say, yeah, after my freshman year of college. At the time, I'd been in America for a year. I only moved to America for college. Um, it was my freshman summer that I was interning at Amazon and realized, like, just how out of depth I was. Like, I was supposed to be an engineer. I didn't really understand much of what was going on. That's also the time when I discovered I'm actually a pretty shitty engineer. Um, but that happened to coincide with the launch of the Facebook platform. And being 18 at the time not having a fake ID, not knowing anyone in Seattle. I had a lot of free time on my hands. And that kind of nicely coincided with the launch of the Facebook platform, which back in 2007 was like this crazy viral platform, the likes of which we haven't seen since. Um, and that's when I kind of started dabbling, building Facebook apps, made some money over the summer. And after that, I've pretty much always been involved with, you know, random entrepreneurial ventures. Got it. And how does you know how did your uh, your you know your building apps on Facebook lead up to building a online education platform? Yeah, it's, it was a long process. Um, for I did Facebook apps for about four years, made a lot of you know made a lot of money, but almost didn't have the fulfillment of building something bigger. 
Um, to give you an example, you know, as much money as the Facebook app business made, we were building no enterprise value. Like, you know, I just felt like I, one, I was not really adding value to the world, building a lot of personality quizzes, but moreover, even from a business perspective, we were only as good as revenue we made. If I sold that business and I sold it a few times, like, you know, different applications, we'd sell for a multiple of, you know, two months revenue, three months revenue, Compare that to, you know, a good growing SaaS company where you can sell for upwards of 10 times annual revenue. You're building, you know, actual enterprise value. So I reached a point in my life where, you know, I, I was financially comfortable, but I wanted to build something big. I wanted to build something bigger than myself. I wanted to, you know, have and hire a motivated team to do it with me. Um, and in terms of problem areas, online education just seems so exciting just because I fundamentally believe that we're, where the world is right now Absolutely everyone can be a teacher. Um, and I think we, we can play a big part in making that happen, just empowering regular people to become online teachers. I love it. And how do, uh, how do users look like today? And what are your growth rates? Yeah, so the big difference between us and other kind of online learning platforms like you know, Udemy and Skillshare is our user, or internally who we think our user is, are our teachers. So for instance, you know, we have about 12,000 teachers signed up on the platform. Um, bear in mind, you know, that's a vanity metric. That's like everyone that's signed up, um, not active teachers. We have 12,000 teachers that have signed up. We have about 600,000 students that have signed up. But we only look at the teachers kind of as our active users. And, you know, the users are concerned about. I mean, some teachers, one of our teachers has 100,000 students. But we don't really think about the student numbers as much because ultimately we want to be a tool for teachers. Got it. Okay. And how did you go about acquiring, let's say, the first 100 teachers? Yep. So... I think, yeah, for about two months, I think we worked literally for three teachers. But it started out when I had a course that I was teaching with a buddy of mine, Conrad, um, and we had it on Udemy. And I realized that, you know, like Udemy is great because, you know, we could make passive income, but there's very little we could do to actually grow beyond the one or two thousand dollars we're making there. Like there was no, you know, like we couldn't buy paid advertising to it. We didn't have users' email addresses, so we couldn't upsell them anything. Um, they, when we tried launching a subsequent course, repurchase rates were pretty low because a lot of the people that we brought to Udemy were now being cross-sold into our competitors' classes. So the first version of Fedora was just trying to solve that simple problem just for us. Um, and as soon as it worked for us, you know, I went around emailing every Udemy instructor in the world, like over and over, being like, hey, guys, you know, I have this solution. It works really, really well. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how we got our first few users. The interesting thing to note is even though I did a lot of this cold outreach, initially it didn't work very well. Um, people were not very receptive to it, of course, because, you know, it's a new product and you receive so much inbound, you know, crap that you're not really like excited to jump on it. But something very fortunate happened where two weeks into this company, Udemy decided to retroactively change the revenue share of their paid teachers. So they used to pay teachers 70%, but they decided to pay teachers 50%. And that pissed a lot of people off. And all of a sudden, the emails I'd sent out suddenly started getting more responses. <laughs> it was so fortunate. Like Sometimes I think about like how different our growth path might have been had that not happened. But I guess when you talk to most you know, entrepreneurs, they all talk about how they had these random moments of luck. And that was certainly one of them for us. That's interesting. Did you, did you uh, track the retroactive response rate from that? I mean, I didn't have, I didn't have an, you know, an analytical approach to it. Like I had no actual metrics, but anecdotally, mm. a lot of people replied, including, you know, our, our third customer ever was, you know, a site called learnsprogram.tv. They've grown to be one of our bigger customers. And 
at the time, they were the number two selling Udemy instructor. So the second biggest instructor on Udemy only replied to my email and told me he did it because Udemy changed the revenue share. So as soon as we, so like our third customer ever was the second best selling Udemy author. And, you know, that kind of stuff just paves the momentum for everyone else who looks up to him to then come on board. Interesting. Okay. Now I I took a look at your pricing and it it is a little, um, it's definitely a little different from what your competitors have. So I, I guess my first question would be, how are you guys different from your competitors? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, with, with all due respect to, you know, a lot of our competitors, um, most of them kind of are approaching or relatively new to the software world. Uh, most of our competitors are largely internet marketers that, you know, look at soft, think about software very differently. Um, for instance, most of them think about software in terms of, okay, you know, I'm going to launch the software product and, you know, have a million dollar launch in my first year by selling, you know, 10,000 licenses at $300 each or whatever. Um, we, my background is software and we've built this to be a software company. What that means is, you know, we've raised money. We have an engineering team of six, you know, very six well-compensated people that, you know, would get jobs at any of the top software companies. And consequently, the way we develop our product is not just something that will be relevant today, but something that will be relevant five years from now. Um, so a lot of the things we do that other people don't do is, we allow you to customize every aspect of your site. So we're a full-blown content management system under the hood. Um, We allow you to intercept important events and build your own extensions. So our entire platform is completely programmable if you have the right kind of skills. And what this allows us to do is it allows us to move upstream and sell to kind of enterprise clients and larger companies that have very custom-specific needs. Interesting. Okay. Now, do you want to explain your, um, your pricing model a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will caveat it with, I'm not a pricing expert. I, you know, I wish I could tell you we've done, we've analyzed it and this is the optimal pricing. And, you know, like this is, this is the pricing we're going to stay. I mean, I'll be the first to admit, like, I don't fucking know. I think this is good pricing. We have, you know, (laughs) we have a fair amount of, we have a good number of people that find us incredibly cheap and a few people saying we're too expensive, which I think is right where you want to be. Um, like we've, you know, we've, it's funny because we get so much feedback saying, holy shit, you guys are providing so much value. You should be charging more. And then we have a few people being like, hey, I can buy a WordPress plugin for $100. I don't see the difference. So we have, you know, both sides of it. But the way our pricing works is by default, our product is free to use. And we take a dollar plus 10% of every sale. Um, we take nothing if they just have free courses and free enrollments. And then we have paid plans that reduce the percentage we take all the way from 8% on our $29 a month plan to absolutely nothing at our plan that's, you know, a few hundred dollars a month. Got it. Okay, cool. I think it makes sense that the percentage goes away um, as, it, you know, as, you, as your pricing goes up. Um, yep. Okay, we, cool. also, we also don't price on a lot of other traditional value metrics. For instance, we allow you unlimited video bandwidth. I think you'd struggle to find too many other people that do that. Um, like most of our competitors that kind of have flat pricing do not even really do video. So we do video bandwidth. You just upload your videos to us. We take care of that. Um, we do email delivery. We have native email built into the app. Most other providers require you integrate MailChimp and other stuff. We let you integrate other providers. We do email natively as well. So we do a lot of things that other people don't do at no charge. So we don't charge on the number of students. We don't charge the number of courses. We don't charge on hosting. We don't charge on bandwidth. So we give a lot of stuff away for free. Got it. Yeah, this is this definitely seems like a more complete solution to me. Uh, you know, you talk about the other solutions out there being, you know, WordPress plugins and things like that. I think if you want an all in one, this is it, right? Yep. 
Cool. Um, you know, I've read something. Uh, you talk about your five favorite growth tactics. Can you share what those are? Um, five favorite growth tactics from where? Sorry. Um, let's, just, let's just take it from the top of your head. What are your, I'm, I'm going to pare it down a little bit right now. What are your two most favorite growth tactics today? Okay. Um, so we'll probably apply this to a Fedora context. I can talk about, you know, for a SaaS company, specifically my two favorite growth tactics. Um, so for a SaaS company, I think the two biggest things, the two highest leverage things you should do and we're investing a lot in is building an audience. Um, for instance, you know, like a lot of internet marketers know this, right? That's their business. They build an audience and then they sell to the audience. A lot of SaaS companies don't do this correctly. They, they focus almost too much on the product. And of course, you want to have the best product in the world. But if you can independently build an audience, you know, by giving away some kind of free, free content you know, and do that effectively, I mean, that, that'll, that will always be your single highest leverage marketing channel. So for us, for instance, you know, we're 12 people and we have three people full-time focused on content, 25% of our team. And as we expand to, you know, 40, 50, 100 people in the company, we want to keep that ratio. I think 25% of our company is always going to be content. It is the single highest leverage channel we've seen. And even on content, it's not, you know, it's not just a blog. It's a blog, YouTube channel, having free courses, free email courses. All of that collectively gets us leads cheaper than any other source. And what's even more exciting is it seems to be scaling. Um, the more content we put up, almost linearly increases the number of leads we get in. So that's the one kind of biggest growth thing I think you can do. The second thing that has been working out really well for us is a good webinar strategy to convert our free users to paid users. Um, and it's something we didn't do for the longest time, and I feel pretty stupid about it. But now the single most effective way we're converting our free users to paid users is by putting them into a webinar sequence, having a webinar every Thursday with kind of a strong call to action to upgrade. That's been working out really well. Got it. Now, are these webinars automated webinars live? Nope, they're, they're live. They're live webinars. Um, we have someone on our team, Andrew, who's you know incredibly good at webinars, but that's his I mean, eventually he'll move on to other things. But for the last two months, he's been full-time focused just on webinars. Got it. Um, and it's been so high leverage. I mean, obviously you have the, we have a weekly live webinar. We've experimented a bit with paid acquisition to automated webinars, but results are still inconclusive. Um, and the third kind that's worked out really well is JV webinars, where you partner up with someone else. Like we did a joint webinar with AppSumo last week. And that drove about, you know, over 500 new signups to our site. Wow. And the 500, uh, the 500 signups, these are your free signups paid? Yep. They're, they're free signups, but, you know, that's when they get into our funnel where we like, where we convert close to 5% of them to pay us in some way, shape or form. Got it. Now, what's your typical conversion rate from webinar to free? Um, so no, the webinar comes after free. So, okay. So, got it. Got so it. it's okay. free webinar paid. Got it. Okay, cool. Now, a lot of people talk about content marketing, um, what you guys are doing. So I'm just wondering how much volume are you guys putting out, first of all? So right now we're on a blog post cadence of one to two posts a week. We're trying to get it to three times a week. But what we're spending a lot of time on now is not just the blog post itself, but the promotion piece. And I think that's what a lot of people don't do correctly. They produce a ton of content, but they don't promote it correctly. So we're spending a lot of time on promotion and a lot of time on refactoring the same piece of content in different ways. For instance, if you have, you know, a meaty 2,500 word blog post, there's no reason you can't have a corresponding deck on SlideShare, break up parts of that into smaller answers on Quora, use it, publish it on LinkedIn to your personal network, um, record and, you know, 
record an interview with whoever the blog post is about and publish that as a podcast, you know, take the same thing. I mean, you're really good at, you know, taking this, this, this audio interview we're doing right now. I know you put it on YouTube and that's pretty smart because you're doing the same thing where you're, you're building this one asset and then you're refactoring it in a lot of different channels. I love it. So, I mean, you know, what type of person, what type of title handles this content repurposing? So we have, we have three people on our content team um, led by Conrad who came on board as, you know, co-founder of Fedora. So he's leading the team and under him we have, we have two people focused on content, one on the writing side, Ashley, who, you know, puts out most of our blog posts and then Allison, who does most of our design work because a lot of good content, if you notice, is well-designed too. So we have someone working almost full-time on designing good content. So everything from like, like great infographics, um, someone to kind of create the slides that, you know, go with our webinars, uh, get leads through slide shares. So we have someone focused just on the visual side. Got it. Now you, you hit on what I was about to talk about next. You hit on the promotion aspect. So, you know, what, percentage breakdown does it look like you know is it 50% goes to content 50% goes to the promotion how does that look for you guys I think it, I think it depends on kind of how far along the process you are and how big a list you've built right so if you're someone like I know you spoke to Derek Halpern someone who already has such a massive list massive audience um, for him he can afford to spend more time on just the creation because his audience does a promotion for him for someone like us we're trying to do 50-50 I can also see a world where it can be 25% on creation and 75% on promotion. Got it. Now, what is that promotion? And you can just give me a high level bullet point. You know, what does this promotion process look like for you guys? Uh, yeah. Um, so we, we have an internal list of influencers that we believe, you know, have our very high leverage um, in order just because a lot of similar people, a lot of our audience looks up to them as a thought leader. Um, so a large part of promotion is to try and do things with them. So even the joint webinar with AppSumo and Sumo Me, I would kind of consider in that category where their entire audience was people that have blogs and people with an email list. And I think that's a great audience for, you know, who we're trying to reach. So that was an example of, you know, reaching out to them. Um, obviously, I've known Noah for a while, so that made the entire process easier. But just setting that, setting that up. Um, for a standard blog post, I think promotion is a little bit different unless you have someone you can reach out to and it's mostly obviously you know you want to do social media you want to find everyone you've referenced in the blog post tell them about it and see you know if they're willing to share it on social media or with their email list and so forth and the third thing is and this is the biggest part is taking the same content chopping it up and refactoring it in as many places as possible so as i mentioned you know like the same post can go to you know i want to say to 15 20 different sites Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I think both are really good takeaways. I mean, chopping it up and also the, the promotion aspect. Um, the, uh, I know some people, especially in the SEO world, they are, you know, when they, when you talk about promotion, I mean, they go to like BuzzSumo, they make a list of people that have promoted something and then they go out and find all those emails and they send like individual emails to all these people, you know, how, how does your process compare to that? Yep. So we're, we're still, we're still experimenting with that um, individual emails work as long as the point of the email, if it's your first point of contact, is to actually give them value rather than make an ask. So if it's someone we've referenced that, you know, we, we've not talked to before, we don't know them very well, what we will do is like in the first email, legitimately try and help and be like, you know, I love your content. Um, actually wrote about, you know, why we love your content. Here's a link and, you know, keep being awesome. It's not about the ask at all. 
Um, but if we get a favorable response, you know, that's a first step in the relationship because ultimately, you know, content like everything else in business, it's all about, it's about relationships ultimately, right? It's not about, it's not about really gaming the system. It's about having people authentically look to you as an influencer and people authentically, you know, caring about your voice and what you have to say. Got it. Okay. Now I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, there, there's a story that it's called the, the widget mogul story about how you made $1 million building Facebook quizzes. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this, yeah, as I said, back to Seattle when I was 18 years old, um, that was when I started messing around with the Facebook platform and soon discovered my, the first thing I did was I built a fantasy cricket application just because, I mean, growing up was my favorite sport and I love fantasy football too. And I was like, it's such a logical thing. Um, I soon realized that that application might've almost been too useful for Facebook just because Facebook at the time was, you know, all about like very, very trivial, like, I don't want to say stupid apps, but kind of stupid apps. And that's when I stumbled upon personality quizzes by, you know, creating a quiz called how good a lover are you? And that just like, went crazy viral like it went from i think it got to 300,000 users like in a matter of days and that's kind of when i realized that you know okay this like this is unprecedented never in the history of the internet have we seen something that can grow as fast um which led me to you know building literally an assembly line of quizzes with my college roommates at the time this is all when i was in college where we had a full process for like idea content upload publish um, just done over and over and over again. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yep. So I have to ask you, you know, you, you go from quizzes and then, um, I mean, there has to be some cool statistics around online education. Any, anything you can share around that, that kind of made you decide to go into this space? Honestly, it, it was just more recognition of the potential rather than, I mean, you know, of course, like when we talked to our investors, we're like, yep, it's a $50 billion market and, you know, it's growing 50% year on year. I mean, there are all those metrics. But what excited me was just the power that individual teachers have. Like, it's, it's, it's unreal when you think about it. I mean, two of our customers last year made $2 million in sales, over a million dollars in profit to them teaching how to build iPhone apps. And these guys are not, you know, they're not computer science majors. They're not developers of popular iPhone apps. They're just two dudes that are really good teachers. Like, that's fucking cool. Like, you know, like never before has this happened. And I think now this is going to happen more and more and more. We're just going to see random people that are really good at teaching something become online celebrities. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of the motivation. And there was actually one news article that made, my, made me start thinking about this. It was in the Wall Street Journal about how the top teachers in Korea earn... I was just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the first thing that got my mind like, going in that direction. And I'm like, that's not happened in the US yet, but it's stupid to think it won't. Like it's, it's literally a matter of time. I think we're going to have, you know, many, many million dollar teachers. I think at some point there's going to be an online course that does as well as a big budget game. Like I think there's a lot of comparables in the video game industry too. I think it, there'll be a lot of kind of indie course production studios and there's going to be one course that's so kind of instrumental to the form factor that I would not be surprised if it makes a hundred million dollars. Wow. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned uh, that the Korean teachers. I mean, they are literally celebrities there. And I, I think it's what, one of them makes 7 million bucks a year. Yeah, it yeah. makes sense too, right? If someone's yeah. like, why would you learn from anyone that's not the best at anything? Like, like it, it, if, if you have the opportunity to learn from the best, like, fuck it. Like, you know, why not? Um, and I think other authors are starting to realize that too. I mean, Seth Godin now is temporarily put kind of writing on hold and he's focusing, you know, solely on building online courses. 
And it makes a lot of sense when you look at the economics of writing. Because in the past, as a writer, you know, you sell a you sell a ten dollar book, your royalty is probably a buck, two bucks. Um, now you can sell the same course for fifty dollars, keep you know forty seven dollars, and not just that, you also have a market for high end courses. Like Seth's latest co- course is twenty two hundred dollars. Um, wow. You're not going to sell a twenty twenty two hundred dollar book. I didn't even know who was selling courses. <laughs> yeah, twenty two hundred dollars, and I don't know for a fact, but my guess would be knowing his audience, like he'd be. He'd be able to sell a thousand seats in hours. Wow! Yeah, yeah that just shows how, I, I, that shows the opportunity here. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. tell us about one big struggle you faced while growing this business. Yep, um, I think the biggest struggle I faced was I was too slow to hire a team. Um, I did too much for too long, to the degree that it was almost my like irrational fear of like handing off and like getting more people to help me. And a lot of people can relate to that just because you're so close to it, but I overdid it. You know, I was, I ran the company solo for about eight months, which was at least like four, it was at least four or five months too long. It makes sense when you're first starting to, you know, dabble around and stuff, but like it doesn't make sense when like we've got a little bit of money in the bank and I'm doing like coding, customer support, sales, marketing, everything. Um, that was one big mistake. What does a little bit of money look like in the bank? I just want the audience to have some context. Now, we had just raised our first, the first part of what became our million dollar seed round, which was $100,000 check. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And, and yeah, on like on a similar path, I mean, because of that, I mean, as I mentioned, I'm a shitty, shitty engineer. I built the entire first version of our code base, which was great because it worked. But it also meant when I actually hired a development team that to rebuild everything from scratch. So here we were nine months into building a product, a very promising product. Everything was going really well, except we had to build our entire technology from scratch. So that ended up costing us at least six months of progress. So it was a pretty big mistake and something, you know, I will like never, ever do again. So key takeaway here, hire faster. Hire faster, don't overdo it. And I guess at some level, like just be less afraid when you see momentum. Like at some level, I think I was just afraid to actually make this a real company. You know, I was like, ah, oh, this might fizzle out. I don't know if we have enough traction. No, like we had enough traction like month two. Um, like traction, I think is a little bit of a binary thing. If you're worried, you don't have enough traction, but you have some traction, you probably have enough. Huh, that's interesting. That's actually a really good quote. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, what, I mean, was there a point in time where the company was on the brink of failure? Um, not yet. Knock on wood. Um, we've never, yeah, we've never had that. We've never had that happen yet. Um, we raised, we ended up raising more money than we needed, which was, you know, good advice at the time. And consequently we still have most of it left. So we're not, you know, we haven't had an experience with that yet. Okay. How about with the, the Facebook quizzes thing? All the time. And it wasn't just a brink. Um, Facebook would make a random change to their like newsfeed algorithm and boom, we were done. Like, you know, there was literally a time when we've gone from making like $25,000 a day to like 80 bucks the next day because Facebook made a change to their newsfeed algorithm. Holy shit. And this happened, I want to say about 10 times. That's literally, you don't know what's going to happen. There's like a gun to your head every day. Oh man. Like that, like it's funny, right? That like that, I can't imagine anything that sucked more than like how we felt when that happened, but it's made me a stronger person 
because of that. Like the like because like that like messes with your emotions like nothing, right? Like to go from having like so much to nothing over and over again. Yeah. By the end, I was desensitized to it. But the first few times, I was I would I would I was crushed. I would like multiple times. I was like, I'm never doing this again. Like like they've changed the algorithm. This is like completely devastated me and my business. Like I'm out not doing this again. A lot of ups um, and downs. Yeah. In time you get used to it. And now I think it's better prepared me for anything that kind of comes, comes my way. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, l- looking back on it, every little bit of adversity, no matter I mean, when it hits, I mean, it's yeah. you emerge much stronger from it. I, I think this is certainly one of those scary things. Yeah. And it just tells me, maybe you should go play poker yeah. when you go to Vegas or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's yeah blackjack what's, man blackjack blackjack's my my game of choice i don't know about that blackjack i'm on tilt the whole time the one, even, the even one, if I'm the winning. one blackjack quote i love i love telling people at at tables and i think this is um are you a basketball fan yes um so i think michael jordan i mean not a great example because he does have a gambling problem um but he was out scouting deciding which team to play for next and he was out with the manager of i can't know some franchise and they were playing blackjack and this guy refused to hit his 16s. And Jordan finally walked away saying, I cannot play for a manager that does not have the balls to hit the 16 on blackjack. Now, I think that's a great, the thing that's a great, great, you know, it's one of those things that like, it's a hard decision, right? When you're hitting a 16, you know, like, like 80%, 70%, whatever, you've lost a hand. Like this is over. Your best shot is to, do, is to just do something that's probably going to, you know, definitively make you lose, but it still gives you the best odds. So it's a hard thing to do, but you just got to do it. No, that's totally right. I never surrender. I'm going to take, yeah. the, I'm going to take the bomb. Yeah. Um, cool, man. What's one piece of advice you'd give to your 21-year-old self? 21-year-old self? Uh, um, yeah. So the one piece of advice I would give to my 21-year-old self would be, again, don't, don't run away. Don't run away from traction. Um, like, double down whenever, whenever you can. I mean, as it gets becoming a lot of gambling analogies here, but actually, you know, like the fact that I was afraid while trying to scale Fedora up because I didn't know I had enough traction. Um, it's always better to err on the side of kind of being too aggressive rather than feeling bad for not taking the plunge, especially when you're in your twenties, right? I mean, this is your time to make mistakes. This is the time to like you know, mess up and be like, oh, well, you know, try to do too much too soon. You don't ever want to, you know, not take the plunge. Right. It's funny. Um, you know, I remember Jason Lemkin from uh, Echo Sign um, saying that, you know, once you have 10 customers that are not yeah. friends and family, you actually have something. Do you yep. agree with that? Yep. And I didn't at the time, right? We had, I probably waited till we had, I don't know, over a couple hundred customers, like, customers before i was like okay it's gonna be a real company we're gonna hire people we're gonna raise money that was stupid we should have done that you know months and months ago um and that's the thing about traction because i've had businesses that have had no traction it's painfully obvious like you will have like zero customers for a very long time got it okay how do you how do you structure your day um i'm gonna caveat it with i'm probably not a good example (laughs) with how to structure a day um it's very, very, you know, it's very, very kind of what is the most pressing priority right now. And that's a challenge I'm having, I'm facing um, kind of in this transition from going from running a company independently to running a company with a few people to now where we are with 12 people is just not having time to kind of, you know, create something like because my entire work is so interrupt driven. Um, But in my ideal day would be, you know, wake up, 
do a couple hours of, you know, things that I need focus for. So I'll generally do it from home. Um, in an ideal world, I'll have time to go exercise before heading into the office. Um, and then when I'm in the office, it's just largely helping everyone else being, you know, pretty much interrupt driven, um, having lunch. I love doing my meetings after lunch cause I can do meeting. I, I need less, you know, after lunch is a little bit of a slump. Um, and I find meetings to be something that requires less mental power. So I like to do my meetings in the afternoon and, um, probably capping it off with drinks with our team. Cool. I love it. I lo- so how often are you out with, uh, your team getting drinks? Probably too much. We probably drink too much as a company. Um, I want to say anywhere, I would say probably about twice a week. Oh, that's perfect. I, I think yeah. that that's one thing uh, you, you have to bond with the team, right? I mean, it's a small growing team and you're, you're in there in the trenches. Yeah. I think them, one of, one so. of, the, one of the, the really good decisions we made is right when the company started, when there was one guy who was contracting for us in North Carolina. We'd never seen him at the point. He's now working here full time. At the point, we'd never seen him. There's another employee that had been there for two weeks there was Conrad, who was about to come on board as a co-founder, had not yet. And I, we went to a summer camp held by WeWork in upstate New York. So it was four of us. We spent almost no time together. Um, went for like, you know, a two-day weekend trip of debauchery, um, which definitely helped a lot just in, you know, forming those relationships really early. Cool. Um, what's one must-read book you'd recommend to the audience? So I will, so the one book that, you know, kind of put me down this path of becoming an entrepreneur, um, and I have not tested it to see how well it ages, because I read it when I was, I don't know, 14, 15, um, was Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson. At the time, it completely captivated me. I was at the point in my life where I stopped reading as much, you know, I'm 15, like nothing was more fun than like, you know, trying to like sneak out and meet girls and all that stuff. So I was not at a point in my life when I was actually reading a lot, but I found this book, I read the entire thing overnight. Like I just captivated me, um, read the entire book overnight. And that's what set me down this path of knowing that, you know, like I don't want a job. I don't want to like kind of follow a set path in life. Um, And yes, I would definitely recommend that book. I have not read it in over 10 years now, but I still, I'd still recommend it because that's what put me down this path. You said you read it in one night. How long is that book? It was painful. I mean, like I, I started reading it at, you know, nine, 10 or whatever. I definitely finished it when the sun was coming up. That's incredible. I, I don't know how people. I can't do, do that now. As an, adult, yeah. as an adult, I can't do it. No, I don't even know how I did it then. As an adult, like I, you know, I'd, no matter how good a book I'd be asleep, but. There's, I mean, you have to be wired a certain way. I've, I've never, ever done that in like yeah. at any age. Right. So <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Ankur, I think this is great. Um, what's the best way for people to find you online? Um, probably Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is my full name. Perfect. I mean, we'll have that, we'll have that in the, the show notes and the, the website is usefedora.com. Correct. Cool. Yeah. I mean, if anybody's looking to do any type of course, I mean, if you want something full fledged, I've taken a look at everything out there. Um, use fedora is the one to check out. So, um, encore, thanks again for doing this. Thanks Eric. It's been fun. Hey everyone. I just wanted to tell you about a big online event that I'm throwing on Tuesday, July 28th to August 2nd. It's called the Growth Summit, and it includes some of the top minds in digital marketing and sales, such as Neil Patel, Heaton Shaw, Brian Belfour from HubSpot, Ali Gardner from Unbounce, and much, much more. The amount of knowledge that is going to be dropped during this event is priceless, and here's the kicker. It's free. And we're also giving away a free resource called 29 Growth Hacking Wins by 
Matan Griffel, and Growth Everywhere. So go to growtheverywhere.com slash summit. Once again, that's growtheverywhere.com slash summit to register now to lock in your seat and prepare for an incredible event. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.